Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 237, being recorded on Thursday, September 24th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Tonight on the show, we are really excited to have the author of the book released uh, this April, Always Day One. So if you're uh, familiar with Amazon, that may be a hint of what we're going to talk about tonight. And he's also the host of the Big Technology Podcast. Uh, Alex Kantrowitz, welcome to the Jason Scott Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are thrilled to have you, Alex. I, I'm not remotely implying that this is why you wrote the book, but uh, Scott is a sucker for anything Amazon. So it's the fastest way to get on our podcast is to write an Amazon book. Well, you don't even need to imply it. I mean, it was absolutely the goal. And I've waited a long time, but I'm glad to finally fulfill it here with you guys tonight. Yeah, well, very well played. Uh, also, for, for folks that have already read the book or are going to read the book as a result of this interview, so as not to trick you, the book is actually about more than Amazon, but you wisely chose to elevate the Amazon portion to the title of the book, which totally worked with Scott. Wait, wait, the whole book's not about Amazon? Scott's pretending like he hasn't read the book, but obviously, being the consummate professional he, he is, he, he's read everything you've ever written. Before we jump into the book, Alex, uh, the first thing we always like to do on the show is get a little background about the guests and kind of find out how how you came to your, your current role. So could you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Definitely. Um, so I started my career buying digital ads uh, right at the moment where Facebook was surpassing MySpace in the social media arena and um, just watched it happen as a practitioner, bought those ads and I spent about a year selling ad tech in New York and just was writing about it on the side. And at a certain point realized that this world was changing so fast that I'd much rather write about it professionally uh, than do what I was doing. It might have been just a function of the companies I was at. Um, but for me, I saw there were so many stories that, you know, the media were, was either getting half right or missing completely. And, you know, I loved doing the, the work and, you know, digging up what was going on and finding a way to tell it to an audience and just kind of made the leap. So uh, I covered the advertising industry uh, in particular at first working for ad age, then went to Buzzfeed to cover like Facebook and Google and Snapchat uh, and Twitter. And while I was there um, just decided to go ahead and uh, write this book always day one, which looks really at the different tech giant work cultures that uh, exist out there. And um, the whole point of the book is, these companies are moving to where the future of work is uh, is going. And we have two options. One is we can like sit and fear them, or two is we can co-opt their work, their work systems and actually give them a run for their money and thrive in the workplace that they're dominating. Uh, and for me, the idea was basically get the word out there and get the information out there. And that was sort of the inspiration behind Always Day One. Is, and, and then just as the book released, I quit BuzzFeed started my own publication called Big Technology, uh, which you call it in the intro. It's a weekly newsletter and podcast that covers the tech giants and is sort of building on uh, my work on Amazon and the other tech giants. Very cool. Um, and how, how are you finding being a podcast host? 
Oh, I mean, I love it. I, I just think there's something special about being able to connect with people in a podcast. I mean, you guys know it because you've been doing it for more than three years, but uh, the relationship you have with people who are putting on your show and, you know, giving you a chance, you, know, you have to give almost your undivided attention, uh, you know, when you have a show on and you're in your headphones and you're on a run or driving or, you know, going for a walk. Um, I think it's just an amazing way to communicate with people and it allows for, uh, the nuance that I think tep- topics in the world that we're living in today uh, deserve. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I can be more thrilled with getting into the podcast world. Nice. Uh, well, speaking for ourselves, it's way better for lazy people because, uh, you know, you just hit record, you ramble for a bit and you have a show like you don't have to write all those words and, you know, get judged by an editor and, you know, uh, and it's frankly harder for the audience to give you feedback. So you don't even have to hear how much the audience hated it. <laughs> That's if you can work out an arrangement like that in any form of content production, you got to make that happen. Yeah, I like it. The uh, just be careful about the audio engineers. They tend to be prima donnas. That's my my big advice to you having done this for a while. That's right. Yeah. Got to make sure that you don't have anything clicking in the background. Yes. Yes. Drives them crazy. <laughs> Uh, Scott hasn't stopped fidgeting for the four years that we've done the show. I'm just saying, like, uh, we've tried to buy him quieter chairs, uh, you name it. We've tried it. I apologize to all the listeners that have to deal with it. A fidgety guy. Yeah. So, uh, before we jump in the book, I did, uh, the book starts out, like, even in the preface, uh, you're having this, this big interview moment with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you, you actually got it seems like really good access to a lot of the leaders in their senior management team that you wrote about. Um, did, was there some trick to that? Like, was that just from your, what your journalist career up to that point and, and your reputation or, I mean, like, frankly, I feel like there's a lot of other journalists that have written books and didn't have that, the kind of access you were able to, to secure for yourself. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't as easy as it comes across in the final edition. Um, I can tell you guys the story quickly if you want to hear how it all came together. Yeah, I'd love to. So I was covering Facebook for years uh, here in San Francisco. Um, or what, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not in San Francisco right now, but it's where I live. And, uh, and so I told them I want to write this book based off of this interaction I had with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and they said, okay, we'd be in. Google said they'd be in because I've been covering them for even longer. Uh, and then the ones I didn't have were Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. And for me, Amazon was going to be the key because I thought that, you know, if I'm writing a book about work culture, uh, Amazon has a pretty distinct uh, and fascinating culture. And for me, nailing that uh, that section of the book was going to be super important. So even before we actually sold the book, I booked a ticket to Seattle one way. And I agreed to cat sit for my friend's mom's cat, Lady the Cat. And uh, basically said like, all right, if I sell the book, hopefully I'll get access. But one way or the other, I'm in Seattle until I'm out with the story. Uh, And, you know, then we sold the book the day that I landed. uh, And I met with Amazon PR a few days later, basically said, look, like this is going to happen. And uh, Facebook is on board, Google is on board, and I'm not leaving Seattle until I'm done. Um, what do you think? Like, let's let you know. Help me make help me tell like the most complete, the most accurate story, uh, and let me actually get some people on record. And they hadn't participated in a book since the Everything Store, which is Brad Stone's book that came out, I think, in like 2013. 
or 2014. So I didn't have high expectations, but I guess they figured, hey, we have this reporter that's roaming around Seattle. Uh, he's already got these other two companies on board. Maybe he's going to get, you know, the other fourth and the fifth. So we might as well, you know, get out there and tell our story, you know, for ourselves uh, and, um, you know, see if he'll incorporate some of it. And honestly, like, you know, more, I, I, the overwhelming majority of the interviews that I did for the Amazon chapter were with people who were not sanctioned through the company's PR organization. So I feel like people get the real story in this chapter. It's not just like a sugar-coated repackaging of a press release. But that said, the people they did let me speak with uh, was, were, were pretty invaluable. I got a chance to speak with Jeff Wilkie, who's leaving, but he's their uh, CEO of Worldwide Consumer. And then, very interestingly, Ralph Herbrick, who was their head of machine learning, who helped bring about this like pretty fascinating automation program in the headquarters that took a lot of the work that their people in their retail organization were doing and automated it. And it was great to have a conversation with him talking about how that project originated. Um, I had done some reporting outside, but he was the guy that ran it. Uh, and so it was great to like bring the stories I had heard and sort of get his perspective on it. Uh, and then I was able to visit a couple of fulfillment centers as well. So, you know, I think as a reporter, for me, I'm always trying to tell the most complete story. I think you're missing out if you do only interviews, uh, you know, outside the company. I think you're missing out if you only take access interviews. And so I think always day one is a, you know, if I have to say it, like it's a pretty good blend of both. Um, I think it's the first book ever that Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, and Facebook have participated in together. Um, and Apple... Scott Galloway is really pissed about that, by the way. Oh, I think Scott's, Scott's doing fine and he blurbed the book. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, but um, yeah, Scott, yeah, Scott and I, like, um, I think there's like great synergy between the four and this thing that I wrote. I mean, I, it, his book almost inspired me, right? His is all about the strategy you know, what are they doing? And always day one is more about how are they doing it? A look at the inside, the work systems and the culture that have led to produce what these companies are, are uh, you know, are building. So, um, yeah. And I mean, like lastly, Apple, uh, you know, as per tradition, didn't participate, but um, I got a chance to sit down with Steve Wozniak uh, in a, in a barbecue joint uh, right outside of Cupertino and sort of at the very end of my reporting on Apple, share what I had learned from him, learned and and get his perspective on it. So Apple's out, but Wozniak's in. I'll take it. Very cool. The uh, I definitely want to dig into the Amazon stuff, but um, before we do, I wanted to fanboy a little bit on CNBC. I'm a huge CNBC junkie. Um, are you in the Silicon Valley office there with like John Fort and those guys? So I'm a contributor. I've been appearing uh, on CNBC as a guest for about four years. And then when I left BuzzFeed, you know, I had an opportunity to go out and be a free agent and work with anybody that I wanted to. Uh, and CNBC and I got to talking and we thought it would be a pretty great, uh, uh, you know, connection for, between the two of us where, you know, again, like I've been doing all this reporting on the tech giants. If you look at the S&P 500, they make up 25% of, the, of that index. Yeah. It's supposed to be something that's fairly well distributed across the economy. And you have five companies taking up a quarter of it, right? So obviously it underscores how important these companies are, uh, you know, to the overall health of business in the U.S. and the U.S. economy, which is what CNBC is, you know, known for as the leader uh, in covering. So, you know, for me, it was a great opportunity to go up there and 
um, you know, be able to, you know, drop in when they need me uh, and and give my my thoughts and share some of my reporting. Uh, and uh, it's been great so far. We're a couple of months in, but um, it's just been a real awesome experience to be able to appear on their shows from time to time. Yeah, yeah, they do a really good job. I like the Silicon Alley, and that's probably where you, you do most of your appearance, I imagine, because that's when they, they talk mostly tech, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm still working my way into meeting everybody, but um, honestly, the number one show that I've been on is Squawk Box uh, by a long shot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I I, I love uh, doing the Squawk Box show. I feel like those hosts won't let you get away with anything. Uh, and there have been times where Kiernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin have called me on certain statements and we've had to have little discussions on air about it. And uh, honestly, if you're going to do live TV, those, that's the way to do it, right? Like let's have, let's have some fun. Uh, Let's, you know, not allow people to get away with statements um, without really thinking deeply about them and thinking about the repercussions. And, you know, I feel like I learn every, I learn something every time I'm with them. And, uh, and I don't know, it's just, I, I walk away from each appearance saying, man, that was fun. Let's do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so I could talk about that for the whole show, but I don't want to burn all, burn all our time. Um, let's dig into Amazon. What were, as you, as you kind of dug in, there's been some writing about day one and Bezos has been pretty open about it in his shareholder letters. What were some of the surprises that, that you, as you dug into the Amazon culture? And then also there was the, you know, there was that kind of famous New York times article. I think that was oh, yeah. 2015 about, you know, kind of the headline from that one was, uh, you know, people crying at their desk and, Amazon was very unhappy with that. Um, you know, what were some of the surprises that, that you got from your Amazon interviews? Yeah. I mean, man, that New York Times story, we should come back to that because I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, look, I, I think we talked a little bit about uh, the day one thing. Obviously, it's the title of my book. Um, let's just, you know, touch on it super quickly, right? The idea inside Amazon with day one isn't, uh, you know, work morning, evening and night. Um, you know, keep your foot on the gas pedal, even though many people there do. But day one really means like, think like a startup, right? Don't be burdened by legacy, keep reinventing. Uh, and whatever Amazon does today, if you have an idea of something, you know, to do it better, uh, just just talk about it and do it because the company is literally operating as if like it is one of those companies on its first day without the burden of, oh, we we have to support our existing businesses or this is just the way we do things around here. Okay. So we've said that now here's the question. How do, how do you do that? Right. So it's one thing, you know, all these companies have like, you know, missions and visions that they put like some backwater in their internet and never talk about it ever. But Amazon's really been able to live this always day one mentality. And I think they, like the rest of the tech giants have been able to do it in two ways. One is they rethought the way that we do work uh, in this modern era. So uh, throughout our history, throughout the history of the work world, Almost all work has been done uh, to support existing products. I mean, think of the factory, right? You would have one guy come up with an idea, like let's make screwdrivers. And then everybody, every employee that he would hire, because uh, almost always a he, right, would be making in the factory making screwdrivers. And if you say, hey, let's make hammers, they'd laugh at you because employee ideas were just not a thing that they would pay attention to in that age. Then in like the 70s, we moved to the, Technology economy, where all of a sudden we say, all right, workers are supposed to uh, come up with ideas or we're relying on their knowledge. But even still, almost everything uh, that people in the office do is just supporting existing products. Uh, you know, you might be moving numbers around in a spreadsheet, but you're not coming up with new inventions by and large in today's knowledge economy. 
I think what uh, Amazon and the tech giants have done is sort of flip the whole equation on their head. They've used technology to minimize that work supporting existing products, which I call execution work, and maximize the amount of time their employees have uh, for inventing, for coming up with new ideas and bringing them to life. And so but they, they first reimagine work. And once you reimagine work and create that room for your employees to come up with ideas, you need to actually innovate on the channels that bring ideas to decision makers. And I think Amazon's done a terrific job with that as well. Um, they're famous for the six-pager process where instead of PowerPoints, uh, you know, people write uh, ideas for new products down in a six-page document as a narrative, single-spaced, often 11-point font, calibri, uh, you know, uh, style, and then they just share it throughout. And of course, it's good for crystallizing your thinking and catching up executives you know, really quickly uh, on projects that you are proposing as opposed to like going through a game of telephone. But what that I, what the whole concept of writing things up does in Amazon is it just makes sure that, that ideas can get from employees to decision makers in as quick a time as possible. So that's sort of like the trifecta, you know, in the always day one uh, uh, equation, right? It's think like you're a startup. Don't worry about legacy use technology to minimize execution work, make room for idea work, and then create channels to bring ideas from employees to decision makers uh, in, in as quick a time as you can. Yeah. Having, um, so I started a company that interacts a lot with Amazon and Google and eBay and, and Facebook and whatnot. And it's really interesting um, just from the partnership perspective to interact with all those companies, because the thing that's really amazing um, at Amazon is you'll, you'll have a discussion with someone relatively senior there and they know the details of everything and that you'll do a similar discussion with another company and they'll have to kind of start looping in more and more people from the, from various teams, you know? So if you have a shipping question, they'll be like, well, let me get Larry, the shipping guy in and Sally, the payments lady. And, um, but you, you'd have that same discussion with an Amazon executive and they just know the business so deeply. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a little scary sometimes. <laughs> and then, and then you'll go, you'll think, Oh, that's an aberration. It's just, it's just this guy. And then you'll go meet, you know, eight other people and they all know it just as well as the original person. Did, did you find that as you, you met various people? Oh yeah. I mean, think about the amount of knowledge that's contained in one of those six page documents and then how many conversations you would have to have to replicate that. And it's totally unbelievable how, um, well, just think about the way meetings work in Amazon and most companies, what do meetings look like, right? You end up sitting down with a bunch of people you probably spend 90% of the time thinking about what you've done up until that point and 10% of the time, uh, you know, actually digging into the business and making decisions. Mm-hmm. At Amazon, you read that six pager and then that whole 90%, you know, figuring out what we're doing is done by the time someone says a single word. So, of course, they're going to be, you know, well versed on what the business is doing just because like that's just the way Amazon operates. So, yeah, I would say that the people that I spoke with um, had just this deep domain knowledge. Um, it was almost as if they're all, you know, CEO level uh, uh, expertise in Amazon in a way that you don't find elsewhere. Yeah. Do you um, do you think that Bezos will? So let's say he leaves. Do you think this culture will be so uh, calcified in there that that it will keep going, or do you think eventually they'll they'll stagnate? I, yeah, I think, look, the, the culture at the end of the day is going to come from whoever the leader is. 
uh, I do think like, you know, I do think CEOs have an outsized uh, influence in the way the culture operates inside a company. And that's why when CEOs are like, oh, I wasn't aware of how this toxic bubble happened or this toxic behavior happened. I always laugh a little bit because it's like, yeah, okay, maybe you weren't there day to day, but you certainly set the tone that allowed this stuff to happen. Um, so Bezos, I mean, first of all, I don't think Bezos is going to leave anytime soon. You know, I when I was in Seattle uh, reporting this book and in the time I've spoken with Amazon employees since, my impression was always that Jeff Wilkie would be the guy to take over if Bezos left. And Wilkie leaving to me is sort of a clear indication that Bezos has no plan to go anywhere anytime soon. So I expect Bezos to lead that company for a long time to come. You know, as for whether the culture will change, here's my prediction. If it's somebody internal, it won't change very much because they've seen how that culture has been so effective in getting Amazon to where it is. But like if Mark Zuckerberg took over Amazon after Bezos left, you better believe it's going to be a different company with him running the show. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, sorry that was that was hard to imagine for a second there. Um, well, hey, I, I mean, never say never because sure. actually uh, Zuckerberg and I write about this a little bit in the book, but uh, Zuckerberg asked Bezos to go and shadow him for a couple of days. You know, Zuckerberg had this thing, uh, and it happens. It's common in Silicon Valley where CEOs will ask other CEOs to spend a couple of days just watching how they work, and. Uh, and so Zuckerberg had shadowed Don Graham, the CEO of the Washington Post. Uh, and Don said, you know, Mark, you're not going to learn anything from me, but end up being pretty, uh, you know, impactful in terms of Zuckerberg's ability to lead Facebook. And then Don Graham eventually sells the Washington Post to Bezos. But Zuckerberg knew he had a relationship even beforehand. And he said, Dom, Don, uh, you know, can you introduce me to Jeff? And he said, Sure. So Graham asked Bezos if Zuckerberg can shadow him. And Don Graham was, uh, you know, pretty involved with Facebook. He was a board member. And so he just said, okay, let me make this ask. And Bezos calls him up and says, hey, Don, look, it's a great idea. But the only thing more distracting than having Mark Zuckerberg follow me around all day would be having Angelina Jolie in the office. And so unfortunately, we're going to have to pass on this idea. And why? When I brought it up to Zuckerberg, he seemed like absolutely dejected. He's like, yeah, he didn't let me. You know, it's so funny. Um, so anyway, I don't think it's such a random idea. You know, maybe Zuckerberg's next act, next act is doing some sort of e-commerce business. No, I, I've um, not maybe at that level of CEO, but uh, there have been a couple like pretty public examples of these CEO swaps where not just shadowing each other, but where they trade jobs for a week, which is pretty funny and illuminating. Yeah, that's a fun hypothetical. What happens to Facebook if Zuckerberg, if Bezos runs it for a week? And what happens to Amazon if Zuckerberg gets his hands on the thing for for a week or two? Yeah, that might be I, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I have a hypothesis, uh, but I, maybe I'll save it for later in the conversation. Okay. I do I do want to unpack a couple of things. Uh, so first of all, you you do write uh, a lot about the the engineer's mind and it's kind of a thread throughout like a number of the the um, deep dives. And uh, I, I certainly think of, of Jeff as a um, as an engineer, although he's not a formal engineer, but as having an engineer's mind. And so I always wondered why he doesn't call it day zero instead of day one. That has always bugged me. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah, we got to take points away from Bezos. Uh, yeah, for that all the coders point. are pissed because day. I believe. Yeah. yeah, he is a trained engineer, though. He just hasn't worked in it for a while. Uh, uh, fair enough. Education is in engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I one of the things that's been fascinating to me and 
um, maybe we have to jump into another part of the the Amazon story that you wrote about hands off the wheel. But but hold just a sec on that. Right. Like you talked in the beginning. And this to me is like one of the fascinating insights from the book that, you know, just this whole evolution of, hey, in the Industrial Revolution, it, it was all about execution. And you you could add the most value by being good at execution. And ideas were like almost not useful. And then, you know, ideas were a small percentage. And, and you know, today we're in this culture where ideas are the the most difficult thing to replicate. And we can, you know, frankly, execution is easier. It's easier to outsource. And, and increasingly, you can automate it and, and throw AI at it. Um, and so in the context of the Amazon story, you, you sort of have the example of uh, a program that Amazon run call, uh, ran called Hands Off the Wheel. Um, and why don't I let you explain it, and then I'll pick back up. Yeah, and, and you guys asked at the top, like, what the most interesting thing I found in the book was, and Hands Off the Wheel, uh, no doubt, was it. Um, so I'd heard some rumblings that Amazon was automating white-collar work in its retail organization, and I thought, okay, well, this is something to investigate. Uh, and it turns out that uh, they've been running this program called Hands Off the Wheel. It was originally called uh, Project Yoda by some people. And they were saying, basically, instead of having Amazon's retail employees, the vendor managers, uh, you know, do things like order products and figure out their pricing and do inventory management uh, and even negotiate with vendors, they could hand that all off to machine learning based off of all the data that they had had. So they started it around 2012, um, where they said, hey, like we have almost two decades of data at our disposal. Can we figure out the way to do this work that our vendor managers would uh, with technology instead? Uh, and it took a little bit of time, but eventually their predictions got pretty good. And so those predictions started to end up in the retail employees software tools where instead of uh, them like typing in, you know, where they wanted to, um, you know, put certain units of, of product, uh, the AI would suggest it and they could either say yes or override it. And then at a certain point, right around 2015, 2016, Amazon's executives said, hey, these predictions are pretty good. Uh, and instead of giving our employees a chance to override them in the systems, why don't we let them make the actual calls? And then see what happens and allow them to learn so they can adjust the machine learning tools. And so they said, essentially, take your hands off the wheel. And they gave them pretty high goals. Some uh, employees told me as much as 80% of all the work that they used to do was now handed off to machines. And basically what they would do is audit it and just say, okay, did you get it right? And, um, you know, are there trends that we, that the machines don't know that we should try to account for? Like, for instance, you could have 30 years of historical uh, knowledge, but uh, not retail knowledge, but when something like a fidget spinner becomes hot, uh, how do you then let the algorithm know uh, that it should start ordering some fidget spinners? Because it's not going to know on its own. It has nothing to work with. So humans actually became more auditors than doers, and eventually their work became much less important inside Amazon. And so typically when you hear stories like this, you're just like, oh, those people are goners. Like, obviously, the company fires them. But the amazing thing about this story inside Amazon is instead of firing these employees, Amazon just made you know many of them product managers and program managers, basically professional inventors inside the company uh, where they said, okay, well, your job's automated, but we still need you to build new things. And it's this prototypical example of a company 
using technology to minimize execution work, right? Because like, you know, buying stuff, buy, you know, doing inventory management inside Amazon was basically supporting an existing product that could run on autopilot, you know, anyway. And it gave them time to come up with new ideas. So it maximized idea work and allowed for reinvention. And that's sort of been, to me, one of the main secrets to Amazon success over the years. And your listeners will know it's not the only thing, but I think it's certainly one of the big headlines that's enabled Amazon to stay on top for so long. Oh, no, for for sure. I, I mean, I basically my career is helping people compete with Amazon, right? And mostly unsuccessfully. And uh, I, I totally agree with the the fundamental premise of your book. You know, clients are always asking me like what what Amazon's fundamental advantage is. And they're like, is it, you know, the the massive fulfillment capability they have or the huge product category catalog they have or the, you know, the flywheel and prime. And, the, you know, those are all super valuable things. But but my firm belief is that their biggest fundamental advantage is their corporate agility and their their um, ability to just uh, evolve and react faster than other companies. And it's it's largely because of a lot of the principles that you you captured in the book. Um, but what I'm not convinced about, I'll just be honest, is the whole repurposing of these employees. So I, uh, so I had an interesting view to hands off the wheel. My, my, many of my clients were the brands that sell on Amazon and they hated hands off the wheel, right? Because if you think about it, if you, if you're a consumer package, good company, you sell to Walmart and target and Amazon. And the way you were good at your job is you, you got those buyers to come to lunch with you and you built personal relationships and you, you know, you hoped that you influenced them to buy a little bit more of your product instead of the other guys. And so as hands on the wheel started getting implemented, those, those vendors lost a human to talk to and to smooth with and to wine and dine. And it, it became this ridiculous thing like, uh, haha, my competitor lost their vendor manager, but we're so big, we still have one. And I always had to break the news to you. Yeah, you have one, but they they don't do anything. They just go to lunch with you. And then the hands off the wheel algorithm still decides how much of your stuff to buy. <laughs> um, so it's I uh, I'm curious. Amazon's famously good at hiring people and they have super high standards. They have this whole bar raiser program, which I'm, I'm sure you ran into. So so they they used all that to hire the best vendor managers they could hire. And then they obsoleted that job, which was totally to their credit. Uh, presumably, the people that they hired as the best vendor managers are not the best inventors or idea people. And so it, it, like, I haven't seen evidence that it's not working for them, obviously, but it just, like, in, like, in my mind, fundamentally, it seems like, huh, hiring a bunch of people as buyers and then turning them into program managers and product managers because you obsoleted their job doesn't on its face sound like a recipe for success. Like it seems like you could hire better program managers. Yeah. Well, let, let yeah, let me give the counter argument here. Right. Yeah, please. Um, I, I fully agree with you that this experience has been frustrating for first party vendors with Amazon, no doubt about it. Uh, but it also happened in a broader context where Amazon was saying, okay, we've uh, we've rode the first party marketplace to a certain point. For us to be able to expand to the next point, we're going to need to really um, foreground the third-party marketplace and our fulfillment and logistics services. Uh, so it, it changed. The business definitely changed, right? But this is, again, the whole idea uh, that you think about when it comes to always day one is, are you going to hang on to your asset 
and milk it for all it's worth, or are you going to build for the future? I mean, Microsoft's a good example. You know, Microsoft's number one asset was Windows for a long time. And it became the number one desktop operating uh, system company in the world and remained so long after desktop operating systems weren't important anymore because mobile operating systems became the most important operating systems in the world. And only after it realized to let go of its asset, then it sort of was able to reinvent itself as a cloud services provider uh, and became what it is today as opposed to what it was just a few years ago. The laughing stocks. So yeah, Amazon did definitely need to transform itself in that way. And those transformations aren't easy. They're painful. I mean, think about how terrible people in the Windows division felt inside Microsoft after they were like the kings of the castle for, you know, their whole lives. And then they realized that they were just kind of on the outside looking in. Um, and so, yeah, from a, from a first party vendor situation, it, it's painful and doesn't doesn't feel right. Um, and might look like Amazon is blowing its lead, but it was also this part of this necessary transformation that happened, you know, maybe before it needed to, but kept Amazon, uh, you know, moving forward in a way that's helped it maintain its dominance today. Um, to the second point of your question, uh, I, I'm going to give a broader answer and then a more specific answer. The broader answer is, um, I think in today's economy, we have to stop looking at people as like, um, you know, folks who do one thing. And of course, yes, specialization is important. And it takes time to learn, uh, to, to learn, uh, you know, uh, sector specific skills. But uh, on the other hand, all of our economy is becoming more uh, abstract. Uh, you know, you have to be able to be nimble and think about things differently. And, you know, maybe move to a couple of different jobs throughout your career. I remember Bezos was sitting with uh, Walt Mossberg at the Recode conference, or maybe it was All Things D at that point. And, uh, you know, Bezos was talking about how work at Amazon, you need to be uh, uh, open to change. And if you're not interested in change, you know, if go, you, you should find a more stable career. I mean, the joke is that there are no more stable careers like that. Like, uh, one of the things he said is go, uh, you know, become an insurance adjuster. And Walt Mossberg said, well, they use iPads now. And Bezos said, insurance, soon enough, they'll be using machine learning. And it's true. Right now, insurance is the field where... The drone flies over the hurricane area and writes all the adjustments now, like 100%. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know I'm, you know, rambling on a bit. But um, I do really think that... So, so yes, um, if you are a, uh, uh, you know, a, a buyer, that's that's the type of career that you want to have, you're going to have some trouble. But if you're thinking more broadly about being in a, being a person who can succeed in this economy, and it's not about job functions, it's about skills and thought process, which Amazon certainly teaches, then you can thrive. Okay, here's the more specific example. Um, Dilip Kumar, who was the head of pricing and promotions inside Amazon, uh, went on to become Bezos' technical advisor, shadow him for a couple of years. And by the time that stint was up, his old you know domain was on its way to getting automated uh, through what was then Project Yoda and eventually hands off the wheel. And so he had an option. He could go there and sort of see uh, his job become obsolete, or he could try to invent something new. And he ended up leading or being one of the members that led the team that built Amazon Go, which is Amazon's checkout free uh, convenience store and soon to be supermarket, I believe. Uh, that sort of came out of this idea. Can we eliminate the most annoying part of shopping in real life? And that's checkout. 
and and they did. And I mean, you guys, I'm sure, have been inside <laughs> yep. the ghost stores. They're freaking magic, and they you feel like you're stealing every time you go in. Uh, and it turns out that um, you know that that turned out to be one of the next big moves that Amazon's making. Every time you hear Bezos talk about it, you hear how it's the future for the company. So I don't necessarily buy the idea that if you do a retail core retail function, you can't be an inventor. I think Kumar is a is a good counterexample for that. Oh, for sure. And yeah, I just think that this is sort of the way that we're heading in the work yeah. world. No, 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 and that's fair enough. And I, I, I'm sure Amazon would would rightly point out, and I think Google and others are even more on this way of like a lot of that bar raiser is less about job specific skills and more about cognitive ability and and problem solving and things like that that would apply to multiple jobs. So I, I, I'm sure a portion of that is, is totally fair. Um, I do. There's one other theme in here that's kind of fascinating to me. Like if you think about hands off the wheel and you 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 kind of described it really well. I can't remember if it was in your book. Uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but you also wrote a great HBR article specifically about the hands off the wheel component of Amazon. The first phase of hands off the wheel was tools for the merchant. Right. So so, you know, originally the merchant has black magic and only he can figure out uh, because back then it was always a he. Uh, how many how many widgets to buy from a vendor and put on the website, right? And so then we get this AI algorithm that suggests how many he or she should order, mm-hmm. but it still was ultimately up to the the human, and the human could override that system. And I, and I think you wrote that they discovered that the human overrode the system way too often, and so eventually they got to the point where it was a hundred percent uh the the system and they you know ultimately were able to solve for all for most or all edge cases um the an analogy to that also in the commerce industry do you follow stitch fix at all i dabble yeah so stitch fix is a you know a uh in a apparel retailer but kind of their part of their magic is the personal stylist for every customer that gets to know that customer and make custom recommendations and early on they hired the the chief intelligence officer from netflix that had written the netflix product recommendation engine and invested heavily in ai for stitch fix and so they have you know this this tier one machine learning product recommendation engine that takes all these attributes from the customer and recommends fixes or products for them but um but katrina the ceo at stitch fix has been adamant oh the customer wants to deal with a human so we're we're never going to just send the recommendations from the algorithm. We're always going to have a stylist that presents those recommendations and has a chance to sort of override or curate those recommendations. So um and in a way that's what like that interim version of hands off the wheel felt like to a lot of my my clients, right? Like they they gave my clients a human being to make my client feel better, but in reality the work was being done by the algorithm. Um and I'm I'm curious if you think like over time, are are we all going to learn that the algorithms are better? Like, will will there come a point at Stitch Fix when they'd be better off to say we have world class math picking your products instead of a you know a, a a moderately paid employee? Right, for a high dollar product like that, um, you probably want a blend of both. So you want the AI to be so good that the stylist doesn't have to go back a thousand times to get you something that you like. Uh, because each one of those moments is an opportunity to, um, that, you know, to lose money for Stitch Fix and to annoy the customer. Uh, and so you get the AI really good. 
And then, yeah, you work in conjunction as a person um, and the human being becomes this concierge, you know, on top of the AI that's using that to uh, end up making the recommendation to the client. And I do think that model, you know, this idea that, um, that, you know, everything's going to be automated and all the humans will go away. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not ascribed to that. I think we're still going to have a very important job for humans, but it might be something that's more interesting, right? Uh, that is something like, um, you know, be the stylist or be the, the concierge from Stitch Fix that's speaking to the, you know, speaking to the customer. That sounds like a much more interesting job than like being the person that runs into the back and, you know, keeps getting different things for people to try on and be the person that puts the order in to bring it from the warehouse. Or that refolds the clothes to put them back on the shelf after they leave. Yeah, Because if the AI can minimize the amount of times the stylist and the person needs to go back to try to find the right fit, then it's doing its job perfectly. Very cool. So that's, uh, uh, we want to leave some for people to buy the book. So that's a good, good overview of Amazon. You also uh, cover Microsoft, Facebook, and Apple. Uh, what interesting kind of cultural conclusions, you know, and we've got kind of the anchor of Amazon now. Did you draw from mm-hmm. those conversations? Yeah, well, I, I think the main thing that I learned was the leaders of these companies operate a little differently uh, than I imagined, uh, you know, the world-class CEOs operating. I mean, maybe I came to Silicon Valley with this idea that everyone was going to be Steve Jobs and sort of, you know, not give a shit about what anyone thinks and sort of stand up on the table in the middle of the campus with a megaphone and bark a bunch of orders and demand people follow their vision. Uh, but I think that that would be a misconception because, you know, having spent time with people like Zuckerberg and been in and around the offices of Google and Microsoft and, uh, you know, touched on Amazon, of course, and Apple, uh, to some extent, like what I found is that these leaders are uh, really terrific at eliciting feedback. And it starts with the very you know first story in the book where I go and uh, you know sit down with Mark Zuckerberg. And typically your you know av- your average conversation with the CEO as a reporter is you know you sit down, they lecture you for about twenty five minutes, and the PR person in the room monitors your facial expressions. And you know if you look concerned, they say thanks for coming. Uh, we'll see you again sometime soon. And, you know, if you look you know, somewhat engaged, they might give you a time for a question or two. Uh, but when I came in to meet Zuckerberg, he immediately starts asking for feedback. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, this is, is this a weird way of trying to sell us on, you know, what he's trying to say? Uh, and then I ended up just going and uh, speaking to Facebook employees, as, you know, we tend to do in this line of work, and found that feedback is just built into everything that Facebook does. So, um, there are posters on the walls uh, in the office, you know, back when that was a thing that say feedback is a gift and one to two day trainings for employees to learn how to give and receive feedback. Major meetings ends with a request for it. Uh, and I think this is important because it means that when you're so comfortable sharing ideas with uh, your colleagues or sharing thoughts with your colleagues, uh, you're not going to hold ideas for good products back. And And I certainly found inside Facebook and elsewhere in the tech giants, that when that sort of behavior is enabled, people aren't shy. They actually believe what you say, uh, and they feel heard, and they're going to come out and tell you things that you know might save your business one day, and it certainly has happened for Facebook a couple of times. What do you think about the Facebook uh, go fast and break stuff, and they have the, uh, what is it, the hacker mindset and all this kind of hacker kind of stuff on uh, all around? Yeah, so I, I actually spoke to Zuckerberg about this. Um, you know, he maintains that move fast and break things is not like actually like break society. It was more just like, you know, push code as fast as you can to the site. 
Yeah. Uh, and I mean, speed building with speed has always been important for Facebook. Um, and why is that uh, important for Facebook? I, I think it's because social media is the most fickle of all product categories, product categories in the world. Uh, uh, you know, we've gone through so many different social media apps. Facebook itself is losing uh, interest with teen users pretty fast. And once social media networks uh, or, or social media platforms start to shrink, it's very difficult for them to build back. In fact, I think Twitter is really the only one that sort of lost users and then brought them back. And, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, the data says that Donald Trump isn't necessarily responsible for it, but, um, you know, I don't think it's one account. I think it's an environment around his presidency that certainly helped, you know, Twitter revive, uh, you know, so that said, like, um, Facebook needs to invent fast because if it doesn't do that, it's going to, it will really be dead. And it has reinvented itself numerous times throughout its history from an online directory to sort of this broadcast platform where you write something on your wall and everybody you've ever met in your life and their friends see it. And now it's transforming again to a series of smaller, more intimate networks with groups and the messaging apps. Uh, So, you know, when it comes to like Zuckerberg's move fast and break things like, you know, you might call it the unfortunate, you know, phrase that sort of, you know, stuck with Facebook as it has gone and broken stuff in a big way. Uh, but it really captures both sides, right? They build fast. They release products before they're ready. Uh, and oftentimes when they do that, it has negative repercussions on society. You know, do I think that they're working to fix that? I think there's at least an effort inside Facebook. I'd like to see it expanded, but I don't think they're as uh, unconcerned with what happens to society afterwards uh, as they had been in the past. Very cool. At that point in your book, right? So you, you covered at Amazon, you covered those other companies, and then the book takes uh, what I'm going to jokingly call a dark turn. Mm-hmm. And that's because you write a chapter about uh, Black Mirror, which is a very yeah. dark, dark show. Uh, but the premise about why you bring that up is um, I, I, you introduced the hypothesis that science fiction writers are probably better at predicting the future than corporate employees. Um, and I was, I was uh, wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit more about, about that hypothesis. Yeah. Um, so definitely. So, so first of all, like I'm a big fan of the show black mirror, obviously have watched it uh, predict lots of different things that happened. Uh, and it will probably continue to be prescient in terms of what's going to happen in our world. Uh, but look, I'm, I'm writing uh, this book always day one from like a standpoint of these are our work systems that, um, have helped the tech giants in a big way, and uh, we ought to know about them and co-opt them uh, so we're able to be competitive in their world. And I'm bullish on the systems. But the other side of that is that like everyone who goes out and approaches tech uh, in a way saying this is positive and only positive has been wrong because uh, there's always downsides to it. Uh, and so what I decided to do was to bring in a science fiction writer and Wael Gonim uh, who helped start uh, the Arab Spring, and, and who now has some reservations about the impact of social media on the world, uh, even though he used Facebook largely to help stoke the revolution in Egypt, uh, and said, let's look at some of the uses of technology uh, in the book and see where they could go wrong. And I think just to push it home, inside Amazon, they write these narratives, the six pagers that we've talked about, and that your listeners, I'm sure, are extremely familiar with. Uh, and one Amazon employee, ex-employee told me it was like uh, it was like writing science fiction when you wrote these things, because it was a story of something that's going to happen that doesn't exist yet. 
And that's largely what you do in the tech world is you dream something up that doesn't exist, and then you go and build it. But the thing about the tech industry stories is they always end happily. And you have to do that for a reason, right? You're in a company, you're tasked with building stuff. You want to think about the successful case and build towards that. But often that makes you blind to the negative. Uh, and the amazing thing is once you put a couple science fiction writers, actual science fiction writers uh, on the problem, people who are used to thinking dark in dark ways, uh, you're, you're going to be a thousand times more likely to catch the liabilities in your products uh, than you would otherwise. Uh, and so I found it to be an incredibly useful and interesting uh, exercise at the end of the book when I was done with my reporting to bring these folks in. And for me, you know, I'm just like, you know, an author of a book uh, doing one dinner with these folks. So imagine how uh, amazing their perspective would be inside a tech company uh, that's actually actively building the future every day. Uh, and I do believe that we need many more science fiction writers working inside tech doing exactly this thing, like looking for liabilities, looking where things could go desperately wrong in the future, and then helping these companies look out for the problems before they happen. Well, that's a good jumping off point. So if we, if you kind of take what you've learned and project it out, maybe it's three, five, 10 years, do you, you know, do you think it's like 95% probability these, these dark mirror scenarios come true where, you know, we're being surveilled all the time and Alexa devices are recording our every word? Or, or do you think that um, there's at least some probability that, that we have a, a more utopian future? Yeah, well, we are being surveilled all the time. And Alexa devices are recording every word. They're just, I guess, deleting them after 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, in a capitalist society, um, the tech giants right now are a good example that they will push uh, the limit to about the edge, but they won't go over it because they know there's just going to be a backlash among the customers. Like ultimately, you know, if you're Amazon's number one leadership principle, as you guys know, customer obsession, right? And, you know, you're obviously obsessed with giving customers a good experience, low prices, wide selection and fast delivery. Uh, and so like the data that Amazon collects is used in service of that. I don't think Jeff Bezos like sits on his iPad at the end of the night or his like, you know, his one remaining Kindle fire uh, <laughs> and uh, decides to, you know, figure out which Amazon user he's going to spy on uh, just for kicks. In fact, now he knows what it's like to be spied on after his photos uh, were stolen off of his phone uh, or off of his, uh, his girlfriend's phone in some way. Um Anyway, look, I think that like we that, that the tech giants need some form of data collection in order to exist. Every every company today really needs some form of data collection to exist. I mean, I run a newsletter business and I have to collect emails. You know, that's PII. So um, so it's an important part of the way our economy works today. On the other hand, like I don't I don't expect um, you know this widespread nefarious use of data uh, to become standard. And, you know, we're definitely going to need a strong press to watch some of the ways things go wrong. Like I do have some concerns about the way that Amazon handles the data that comes off of their uh, ring doorbells, for instance. But ultimately, like these companies are here to serve consumers. And, uh, you know, if consumers know that, um, you know, their their Echo Show is, I don't know if that's still what it's called or you know, yeah. but whatever the Echo Show is uh, spying on them in their bedroom, and like Amazon employees are, you know, watching they sleep, uh, they're going to go to Google. So ultimately, I think that's 
the thing that keeps us at bay more than anything else. You know, uh, coincidentally, Amazon had a big product announcement today. They launched a bunch of their newest Echo products um, and they uh, and Ring products, and they had a lot of new software features. And a lot of the software features were mostly around cleaning up a lot of that privacy stuff. So, uh, for example, you uh, the Echoes all have better, more powerful chips in them now, so they can do more of the speech recognition in the devices, so they send less actual data over the network than they used to but they they built in these cool new features like you can say alexa forget everything i've ever said or forget everything i said in the last hour or things like that that um you know they didn't used to have and they they've done full in in encryption on ring so um i will give them credit for for starting to address some of those and it it occurred to me as you were you were talking um you know there are a couple of these big tech companies that have hired science fiction writers. So I think like uh, Ray Kurzweil famously works for Google. Um, and I, I met this guy, Peter Schwartz, who's uh, uh, I wasn't familiar with him, but he's a cool futurist that like invented a lot of the experiences in Minority Report, like including the, you know, the like eye scanning and the Gap Store and all that stuff. And he's a full time futurist for uh, Salesforce. Uh, so I, I, I think it, uh, your hypothesis may already be true. I think they may already be starting to sort of add add that thought process to their their corporate knowledge base. Yeah, that's great. I applaud anyone that does that. Uh, and it's a two-parter, right? The first thing is you hire the science fiction writers or the dark thinkers. And the second part is you listen to them. And so we just got to make sure that these companies, if they're telling us they're hiring science fiction writers, that they're coming through on the second half of that equation as well. Hundred percent, and uh, I, I'm sure we'll see some where they only do the first half. That's right. Uh, it's a nice press release. Yeah, um, and uh, that's a great point, and that's actually going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time, um, but uh, Alex, we we certainly enjoyed chatting with you. If listeners have any further questions or comments about the show, uh, we sure would appreciate a comment on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd jump on iTunes and finally give us that five-star review. Alex, thanks for joining us. Uh, if folks want to follow you online, what, where, what are your best uh, places that you, you publish content? Yeah, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on. Uh, uh, I, would send, I would recommend folks go to the Big Technology Podcast. It's Big Technology Podcast. You can get it. Uh, in any podcast app. And I have a different interview up there every week, everyone from, you know, VCs to Tim Bray, the VC who, uh, sorry, the Amazon VP who left over its treatment of whistleblowers, journalists, um, and founders. So the whole crew comes on. Uh, it's been super fun so far, as we talked about in the beginning. So I'd love to see you there. And if you're interested in the book, uh, it's always day one and you can find it at any bookseller. You could just type it into Google or Bing if that's what you're interested or DuckDuckGo if you don't like uh, being tracked uh, as we talked about in this last segment uh, and you'll be able to find it. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. That's terrific. We'll definitely put a link to the podcast in the show notes. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 